Hello, Bookstu viewers and listeners. I have a treat for you today. I'm going to be joined by an author who has written 31 books. That's 31. Not only does she write books, but she also has a great website and she has her own imprint. Um, we haven't really talked about imprints on Bookstu before. Um, she has an imprint with her name on it that is part of Simon & Schuster. And um, this is really an honor and a great achievement for anyone to have an imprint. So I'm going to very happily introduce you to Deneen Milner. Hello, Deneen. Hi, how are you? So um, the multi-talented the multi and the amazing um, Jill of all trades, I guess. Um, I'd love to hear more about how you really ascended to the top of the publishing ladder by putting books out under your own imprint. Not yours, but you know, books that you, maybe books you've co-written, maybe authors you've selected. Can, can you tell our viewers and listeners all about how that works, please? Sure. So I, I, my background is as a journalist and a magazine editor. And uh, for a very long time, I worked as an editor at Parenting Magazine and then a national columnist for that magazine. And while I was a national columnist, I created my own uh, parenting blog called My Brown Baby. And I amassed this great following of black parents and parents of black children about 25% of the audience was white adoptive parents raising black children. Uh -huh. uh, and I had this incredible audience that was looking for books that spoke to the everyday humanity of black children that weren't about slavery or black firsts or the civil rights movement. Not that there's anything wrong with those kinds of books. They are wonderful, they are necessary. It is a way for our children to have access to the history of our country and what is important and what has mattered to us. But what also matters to us, and particularly as parents laying our children down, is that they hear stories that celebrate their everyday humanity. And so I just felt like there weren't a whole lot of, um, our access to those kinds of books were a bit limited. And so I, and I was trying to write those kinds of books and couldn't get editors at these mainstream publishing houses to understand what I was trying to do or care about the stories that I thought black parents and parents raising children of color would care about. And so I show, I talked my way into a dinner with uh, a publisher out of Chicago, Agate Publishing. The uh, founder and publisher there is Doug Seibold. And he was having a dinner with my then husband. And I asked if I could tag along with the idea that I would pitch doing a children's book imprint at his small publishing house. And he showed up to that dinner with the same idea, wanting to pitch the lady who has like this enormous parenting website for black parents and black children. He wanted to know if I would be willing to start a children's book imprint. So Boy, talk about, about a meeting of the minds. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's so pretty we, amazing. So you didn't really have to yeah. sell him. It was just, let's no. do this. He was ready, and so we, a year later, that was in 2016, uh, we spent all of, two, that was in 2015, we spent all 2016 
getting books together. Um, I went and reached out to friends that I knew were writers who had beautiful stories kind of sitting on their, their computers that weren't getting any attention from publishers. Publishers weren't interested in them. And I said, I am. And so I published them. One of them was a breakout hit, Crown and Ode to the Fresh Cut. Won every children's book award there was to, every major children's book award there was to win in 2017. Simon and Schuster saw my work and saw the success and understood what I was trying to do and came along and asked me if I wanted to bring the imprint to a larger platform. And I said, of course. Uh, and nothing against uh, my work with Agate Publishing. It was a wonderful experience, and Doug taught me a lot. But Simon & Schuster has uh, sort of a bigger infra infrastructure and a deeper history, and I was able to do even more um, great work at Simon & Schuster. And so I've been there since 2019, and we've done some amazing work. We've won a Southern Book Award, uh, a Caldecott Honor. I have two books that have Caldecott Honors, Newberry Honors, uh, Kirkus Prize uh, for, for children's fiction, just a lot of beautiful work. Most importantly, beyond the, the awards and the accolades, is that there are children all over the country who are reading books about black children, uh, you know, uh, trying to keep the sun up at night because they don't want to go to sleep or <laughs> uh, doing silly things like thinking that there's a dragon in the closet that eats all the cookies and drags <laughs> dirt through the through the, the carpet just wonderful everyday experiences of children also published written well written and illustrated by african-american authors and illustrators because what we found when i started Denise milner books was that um a very minuscule part of the folks who were writing and illustrating children's books were black people. Even the stories that were black stories were written by everyone but black people. Hmm. And so the other mission for Janine Milner Books is to make sure that I'm creating opportunities for black storytellers to be able to tell black stories and for illustrators to be able to illustrate those stories. So if I were a black author who had an idea for a children's story, and I, I sent it to you. What do you look for? Because I know you must get tons and tons of uh, unsolicited manuscripts and you must have a slush pile as big as the sky. What, what grabs you first and what, what makes you decide, I think this fits in with my mission? I, I love a story with a sense of humor. I love a story that, that weaves in history but without being super obvious about it. I love a story that um, that speaks to the love of family. I have a book out now called Ninja Nate. It's by an author named Marquette Shepard. It's illustrated by Robert Paul Jr. It just debuted last week, I believe, or the week before last. And it's about a little boy who dresses up in a ninja costume because he had a tragic accident. He has a robotic leg and he's afraid to show people that he's changed physically. And so he dresses up like a ninja and you know is planning on going to school dressed up like Ninja Nate. And when he gets to school, he finds out that children really are you know, kind and supportive and inspired and inspiring and, um, and don't look to hurt people, that they look to 
help people embrace exactly who they are. And so he's able to go around his friends with his robotic leg and be just Nathaniel and Ninjanate when he feels like it, but it's okay to be Nathaniel. Like that's a beautiful story that you don't really see featuring black children in, right? So you don't see a lot of stories that tap into um, uh, differently abled children. And then on top of that, those that do very rarely feature black children. And so that just sparked my curiosity and my interest because here I am creating this story to help children understand when their bodies are different or um, to have children see other children whose bodies are different and be okay with that and embrace them and love them. And so those are the kinds of stories that I'm looking for. What stories are out there that, um, that speak to, again, the everyday experience of black children and families that we just haven't seen before that really sort of connect you to family and love um, that that leave you inspired, that leave a child inspired to actually look at their own family and see the beauty and love that they have for one another. And so that that's always going to, to make me happy. Well, plus, what child really doesn't want to be a ninja? Pretty much everybody does. So like, Hello, it's, ninja. <laughs> <laughs> it's so relatable. Um, so, right, so that your children's book, uh, your imprint and your story is just... Um, fascinating and uh, great to hear and I hope that um, I'll be able to when I look up uh, books from my nieces and nephews in the library although they are not black children they are children and I would like I really like to expand their reading universes and I and to show them books that are here now that were never here when I was a child I don't remember anything like that I think you're right in that there were a few books, but they were very kind of preachy and mission-driven, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you need a funny story. Kids love to read a funny story over and over and over again. Right, right, and you know, as a parent, when I laid my daughters down at night, I wanted them to listen to, to Tony Bennett's Playground, right? I wanted them to listen to Stevie Wonder sing Ribbon in the Sky, sing Ribbon in the Sky to my, my older daughter, for the first three years of her life, that's how I put her to sleep at night, rocking her and singing Ribbon in the Sky. And I wanted to have books that sort of had that same sentiment, that I am in love with you, that you were created out of love, that we have a beautiful relationship, we have a beautiful life, and that deserves exploration. And so, um, you know, the, the books that we were able to create, there's a gorgeous book called Mia Mama, that is about a, a child going on a walk with her mom. That won a Caldecott honor because it's just so beautiful. It's beautifully rendered, but it's a beautiful story on top of that. And it's a story that can be enjoyed by anyone, right? There's a beautiful educator who talks about books, children's books being mirrors, but also windows. So you're looking at it because it re it's a reflection of your life but other people can come and look at those stories and get a window into our world. And I really do believe that children, um, you know, that they, they, when they read books like that, I used to, I, I used to subversively um, uh, uh, integrate the bookshelves of all of my kids' white, uh, white uh, friends when they were little. The thing that they got for birthday presents was always a bunch of books. And there were two in particular 
that I always gave away. One was Dancing in the Wings by Debbie Allen, and the other one was Tar Beach by Faith Ringgold. Oh, yeah. And both of them are just gorgeous stories about one about a little girl who, you know, wants to be a ballerina and she doesn't fit in until she figures out that all the things that she thinks are wrong with her are actually perfect for ballet. And the other is about a little girl who loves New York. It's a love story to New York City and her imagination soaring. Um, and those books are not about black children per se or blackness per se, right? They're about being a ballerina. They're about loving New York City and loving family and getting together and having food and playing cards and pretending like when you fly over the George Washington Bridge that it's a beautiful necklace that belongs to you. That's what those stories are about. That doesn't have color, right? They're, so they're, they're windows into a uh, the wide world. I mean, it, a child in Iowa is not going to have any idea of what it's like to live in a big city without like books like that. Um, I, I love those two books Absolutely. as well. And you know, the, the ballerina, then you think about Misty Copeland and everyone who's followed her, you know, that's, I hope she had that on her bookshelf. Um, okay, so. On, oh, I'm sure, she had some beautiful books herself. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so that's the kids part. Now you have also written or co-written 31 books, some with celebrities like Steve Harvey, um, Taraji Henson. Taraji so, Henson, right. Now, how did, how did those work out as opposed to the children's books? Because you just have fingers in every aspect of everything that I can think of in publishing every, uh, almost every genre. And then we're going to talk about your novel, which is another whole story. Sure. Well, uh, I, when my background is as a journalist, so uh, I started out as an, a regular run-of-the-mill journalist covering New York City and then got uh, promoted to be a political reporter. I worked as a political reporter at the Daily News and then later as an entertainment reporter. And so my background is being able to go in and see what the story is, ask a bunch of questions, find out what the facts are, and then go ahead and put them into a story that everyone can uh, read and relate to. And so uh, it was quite easy to have editors come to me and say, hey, would you like to you know, do a book with Steve Harvey? Would you like to do a memoir with Nene Leakes? Would you like to do a memoir with Cookie Johnson? Because to me, it's, uh, it feels like a long form profile, mm -hmm. uh, except they get to choose what it is that they want to be in their book. And it's my job to ask them all of the questions that will get them moving on the stories and get those stories and get those details in depth so that I could turn them into, into books. Um, so I got lucky. I left New York and moved with my family down to Georgia because we wanted to be able to raise our children with intention and we just couldn't afford to do it in New York any longer. And I just wanted to be able to meet my kids when they got off the bus and to make dinner for them when they were finished with their homework and to be able to put them to sleep at night and not a nanny. And the only way that we could afford to do that was to move down south. But the beauty of moving down south, even though all of my friends, all of my writing friends were like, you're gonna move to where <laughs> to, to do what? 
like, you know, you do realize that New York is the center of media, right? Why would you deposit yourself in Snellville, Georgia? <laughs> well, moving to Snellville, Georgia opened doors for me because at the time Steve Harvey was looking for a Georgia-based writer. Uh, I had written a series of YA novels with a friend of mine, Mitzi Miller, that uh, was kind of fashioned after the Gossip Girls, but they wanted sort of a black version and they wanted it set in Atlanta. I happened to have just moved to Georgia. So I was able to be a writer on, on that series. Uh, and once Steve Harvey became the number one selling book in 2009, it was on the New York Times bestsellers list uh, for 63 weeks. And I think 50 of them were at number one. Uh, I was able to open that that opportunity opened a lot of doors for me and everyone who was thinking about having someone all the celebrities thinking about having their book written by someone were knocking on my door and so it opened a lot of opportunity for me that's um, it's it's all just pretty amazing I mean things um, I'm not saying you're not a hard worker but there are circumstances that worked for you that other people, it never works for them. Do you understand what I mean? I feel like um, you, are, you are blessed in the opportunities uh, that have been given to you, I'm sure, just through your hard work, but also you know, through your knowing the right people. All of it um, just seems yeah. to fit beautifully together. Um, right. I have you one know. quick question about, yeah. about your career. Did your children ever bring you to career day at school or take our daughters did you do take our daughters to work day and to this day i do career day my kid uh, i have a my youngest daughter is at george washington university in uh dc and she just texted me a couple of days ago to ask me if i would do their black history month be their black history month speaker or one of them so i i still do career day and <laughs> and you I, have I, and you have children who are very proud of you, which is <laughs> a wonderful thing, especially when they're in that age where they're not always uh, on the best terms with their parents. But yeah, um, I'm gonna move on to One Blood because um, I'm just gonna read one a couple of lines that uh, were sent to me by your publicist. Um, Deneen Milner stumbled upon her own hidden adoption papers at the tender age of 12. Terrified of divulging her parents' secret, now her own, she held this knowledge closely and silently until her mother's death when she finally confided to her father that she knew. Um, this book, this novel, One Blood, is, there are women in here that possess strength that is, is beyond superhuman. Um, you have three main women characters, um, Grace, who uh, is the granddaughter of Mama, who was a, a wonderful um, midwife, herbalist, um, her, and then uh, the adoptive mother of Grace's child, who's Dolores or Lolo, who to me is really the kind of the heart of the book who struggles so much with becoming a, an adoptive parent and just goes on these back and forth journeys of adoring her adopted children and then 
pushing them away because of her own internal struggles. Um, and it very much deals with the role of adopted children and adoptive parents. And then Ray, um, who is the adopted child, who is in modern day and goes on to have her own child and also has struggles. So everyone is struggling, but everyone has a supportive group of women who do their best to help each other out. I thought that was almost a theme because when uh, Lolo's husband moves her away from uh, her home because of a secret he's keeping, she loses all those friends that that sustained her and held her up. And that was very traumatic for her. So um, how long did the book take you to write? And which of the three women was the easiest and the hardest for you to uh, express their points of view? Oh, goodness. Uh, so the book took about a year to write. And then we did about a year's worth of edits. Um, you know, with the capable hand of my editor, uh, Monique Patterson, who just understood where the holes were and understood where I was holding back and would create these opportunities for me to go deeper into the story. And so it was a wonderful, wonderful experience, all told about two years, including editing. Um, and the character that was easiest to write was probably Grace, because I was writing her at a remove. She's the adoptive, I mean, she's the birth mother who is 16 and has a baby and has that baby taken away. She's raised in the South. Um, in my mind, I, I was envisioning my dad's home in Virginia. He lives in rural Virginia. He, his grandmother was a midwife and healer. And he always told me stories about her. And so Mama is very much um, like my my father's grandmother or my great grandmother Ida May, um, and uh, I just something about her voice came natural to me, and I think it's because my southern friends always make fun of me when I say this, but I feel like even though I was raised in Long Island in the north, that I am very much a Southern woman. And I say that because I was raised by Southern people. My mom's from South Carolina, my dad's from Virginia. They had family members and friends who were all from, from the South, from Mississippi, Alabama, West Virginia, Kentucky. These were all people who came to the North with their accents, their cultural ways, their way of eating, their way of you know playing, their way of living, their way of worshiping, and I was, a part of that. Uh, and so that voice that you hear from Grace and Mama and Bassie and even, um, you know, the auntie, they're all very much related to um, just sort of this voice that I grew up with that made it very easy to connect with. I think the hardest one to write, I found Dolores and Ray really hard to write. Dolores, mm. I found hard to write because um, if there's anybody who uh, speaks to what I always wanted to know about my own mother, it would be Dolores. You know, she is a, a black woman who is coming of age in the, in the 50s and 60s and who 
gets a husband and has to use her capital as a mother and a wife in order to survive. Because at the time, as a woman, you can't have credit. You can't own a home or get an apartment without the permission or the signature of a man. You can't uh, move in society as an independent person because that is not expected of women. As a matter of fact, it would put you in severe danger. And so what does that look like for a woman who is not capable of having children? How does she go about gaining that capital to literally keep herself alive in a society that is trying very desperately to tell her that if she doesn't have a man, then she might as well just lay down somewhere and end it. And so, uh, you know, I, these were questions that I always wanted to ask my mother, what it was like to, to live in a society in that kind of way, how she fell in love with my dad, why she couldn't have kids, why she decided to adopt, what went into sort of her ability to fall in love with me as an adoptive mom that she, you know a person that she didn't carry in her womb like how do how do those bonds form i never got to ask my mother those questions i also felt like the lives that my mom led with her friends she had some beautiful friends that you know she spent literally every weekend with bowling or going to the house and playing piquino there's a um, a scene in one blood of uh, all of Lolo and her friends getting together and playing Pequeno and eating chitlins. And that is that was very much my life growing up, watching these women um, and this sisterhood and, and you know talking about the Bible and talking about men and talking about raising a family and talking about work. And I just felt like their lives were never really explored in the way that I could um, really learn about them. I'm sure that it's been explored in um, in books. Perhaps I haven't necessarily read them, but these were women who were in New York, uh, middle solidly middle class, raising families and invisible in pop culture. And so I wanted to explore what those lives were like. So that was me asking questions of my mother that I wish I was able to ask her before she passed away. Well, and um, Ray had her. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And then Ray had her out very quickly. Ray had her own challenges because I think she was most like me and sort of going uh. through some of the things that I struggled with while I was a young mother and wife trying to forge a career in a society that told you you could have it all but didn't necessarily tell you how. Or didn't make it easy. So um, I'm oh, going to yeah. ask you to do a, a quick reading because we're short on time. You'll have to do a little bit of setup. Um, for the viewers and listeners so they'll understand where this portion is coming from. But uh, here we go. Okay, so um, this is from the Book of Ray, and it's uh, what happens when uh, Ray finds out some information about her family that is shocking, and uh, everybody knew except for her. And so she's kind of uh, explaining how they used to always sort of uh, discount her with information. This is how they did. Lives, histories were experienced on the hush, very deep, so very deep into the recesses of memory and the marrow of the bones. The Lawrences, like most black people who had, who had been through some things, were deeply private. 
held their stories to their chests like holy undergarments, never to be seen in the light of day. The roots of their reasons for hiding were fed by embarrassment, shame, fear. Wasn't nobody gonna tell about Uncle Jed having his private sliced off and laid at the base of the tree from which he had hung by a bunch of drunk pecker woods with nothing better to do on a Tuesday night? The law didn't give a damn about such things and no same pecker woods pissed about accusations and indignant about even the prospect of finding themselves at the end of a pointed finger could always come back and do the same to Uncle Jed's brother, son, mama, pregnant wife. Anybody who sought retribution, fear kept your mouth closed. Embarrassment worked the same way. A family's dirty laundry, the losses, the missteps, the lies, the secrets could never see the light of day. All of it needed to be buried with the caskets, six feet below the rest of the dirt. Ray wanted no part of this. She was naturally curious and a journalist to boot, someone who appreciated a good story and knew how to tell them too. Bigger though was her yearning to know and understand her family's origin story, the good, the ugly, the complicated, all of it. If she was to have her own origin story hidden from her, if she was to know nothing about a mother and a father that could give her away, who she looked like from where her bloodline actually flowed, if the birthday on her birth certificate was even real, the very least she should know was all of these things about the family that claimed her, raised her, enveloped her into its own. These things meant something to her. Neither Tommy nor Lolo could bear themselves in ways that suited Ray. She made it hard for them to do so, too nosy, too loud about it, and much too sensitive for them to want to divulge. Something big would happen and everyone would hide it from Ray, whose first reaction to most tough discussions she would be the first to admit usually elicited some kind of emotional response. Tears, yelling, brooding silence while she figured out some things. Her mother couldn't stand it, thought it though it occurred to neither Lolo nor Ray that the mother was the architect of the daughter's reactive outbursts. It had racked her daddy with worry. But in Ray's mind, asking questions, examining information, expressing emotion was the purview of normal people. You heard or experienced something that was hurtful, upsetting, and it was perfectly natural to have a demonstrative emotional reply. A release that every bit as necessary to one's recovery and ability to plow through the problem at hand as hot what air was to a steamboat's movement. It never seemed to occur to any of them that hiding would cut them, didn't scare any of them from feeling the festering wounds. It infected the family in ways they could not and were not willing to name. But Ray had come to understand that her tears, her questions, her constant digging gave those wounds fresh air and light, the kind necessary for healing, even if ripping the band-aids off those wounds made them hurt. Oh, whoa. Um, well, I know we're, we're kind of out of time, and I, I hate to close at, at an emotional moment, but um, that really got to me when I was reading it, that ability of Ray's to really see what was going on. Um, so if she, even if she was difficult to write, she was, she's a wonderful character. All the women in the book are, even the men in, in the book are. So I thank really you. want to thank you, Deneen, for coming on Book Stew today. And um, I hope that all my viewers and listeners will rush out and get your book, which I was 
just knock, I, all I can say is knock me out, knock me out, it knocked me out. <laughs> so thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. So viewers and listeners, um, I cannot recommend this book enough. Knock me out, knock me out, it will knock you out. It's One Blood by Deneen Milner. Please look for it and uh, have a great day. <laughs>